From the Shockmasters. Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. I'm Leo. I'm Lauren. I'm Trevor. And we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 179 and a time of release. Happy Halloween. <laughs> this time around, you are joined by Ashlyn Clark. She wrote and directed 2018's impeccable 16mm horror film, The Devil's Doorway. We'll discuss the inspiration for that film, her first experiences in the genre, why horror is such a great vessel for social commentary and reflection, and weaponizing the power of the viewer's own imagination. She also tells you a bit about what she's up to, including her new project, Eye Exam, a time of release one of 30 short films that are a part of Hulu's Bite Size Halloween. Episode 179 is what we call it. This is Ashlyn Clark, and you're listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. There is evil in this place. What's happening here? This room is off limits, father. There's something going on in this house. Hello? You are not prepared for this, Father Riley. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studios, an awe-inspiring creator and storyteller, a celebrated and award-winning writer, director, and lecturer. Her work in theater has toured across the UK and Ireland. She's entranced us through the medium of radio on the airwaves on the BBC and all over the world. Her fascinating journey has brought us an incredible array of short films, including 2012's The Lighthouse Keepers, In the Dark Room, 2015's anthology Short Sharp Shocks, and the highly acclaimed Childer. She became the first woman in Northern Ireland to write and direct a feature-length horror film with her stunning piece and one of our faves, The Devil's Doorway, in 2018. In 2019, she became the winner of the UK Academy Gold Fellowship for Women Grant, supporting rising female filmmakers. She not only understands how to bend and utilize the tropes of the horror genre, but her work also contains the magic to render us completely incapacitated by a breathless sleight of hand that in her own words, comes from knowing the language of the genre, not delivering on that, but giving you something else. She has a new short called Eye Exam, part of 30 different spooky concoctions that make up Hulu's bite-sized Halloween, part of Huluween. We are honored to welcome Ashlyn Clark. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> thank you very much. Hey, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If you can recall, what were your earliest impactful memories with the horror genre as a viewer? Well, my dad was a big horror fan. He loved films and generally loved Westerns. Um, he really, really loved horror films. And I think pretty much every Friday night we would go to the video store and rent uh, horror films. It was a lot of like hammer horror, uh, old British stuff from the 70s. The first film that I remember seeing a horror film was Nightmare on Elm Street. And I was about six, seven years old. And I was the youngest in a Catholic family. So like by the time they get to the last kid, things get very relaxed. So I was far too young by many people's standards, but I loved it. And I rewound it back to the start and I watched it and I rewound it back again. I watched it the whole weekend until we had to return it. And I fell completely in love with it then in that moment. And uh, 
yeah, I remember that really clearly. Just the fascination with the um, this heightened imagined place and that it was scary and scary things were interesting to me because I was kind of an anxious kid. And it, I think as, we've, as people have discussed before, horror is kind of safe outlet for anxiety and everything about it I loved. And um, it was like playing on a grand scale. And yeah, I've been all in ever since. Besides that, what are some of those other films that affected you so deeply that within them, you started crafting your own unique identity as a storyteller, the ones that awaken things in you that only through your work can you really answer why? That's a really interesting question. I think there's so much stuff. Uh, and not all of the, not all of it would even be necessarily horror films either. Uh, the Exorcist, Don't Look Now, uh, Rosemary's Baby. I, I have just come back to it all the time, and I just find so much. Every time I watch it, I find something else to love about uh, Repulsion. Also, stuff like the Scream movies, and you know, I like the I like kind of horror that's more of a thinking piece, something that makes you think about something else in life, or that digs into something. And I also like the stuff that's just fun, like Scream, you know. So kind of a bit of it all. I think when I'm making my own films, what I'm really trying to do is recreate a, an atmosphere or it's almost like trying to communicate a nightmare. So, you know, like when you have a nightmare and you say to someone, this is what I dreamt and you feel so freaked out, maybe for days, it has that indescribable edge and you can't communicate it to someone. You'll tell them, well, I woke up and like there was a big snake at the end of the bed and they'll be like, it doesn't really sound that bad or like a snake right on my mother's head or something. And you're like, it doesn't sound that scary. But you're like, but you had to be there. I think part of creating horror is trying to communicate an otherwise incommunicable idea, a feeling like a, like what you get in a nightmare, a sense of atmosphere and tone. And that's what I'm always striving to do is to try to make somebody feel something that I have felt that I have no other way to communicate. I was curious, when did you discover the movie The Exorcist? I, I know that in the UK and parts of Europe, the movie was either banned or had such a rating where much of the movie or scenes from the movie, at least the controversial scenes, were, were missing and cut for many years. I was curious, when did you discover it and, and uh, what kind of uh, impact did that have in your filmmaking? It was banned in Ireland for a really long time. And uh, I think the thing is, when you ban something, you get an awful lot of people who really want to see that thing. And uh, my uncle... My dad's youngest brother would live with us sometimes. Um, he wasn't married or anything like that. And sometimes he would live with us. And I think he got it from, I don't know where, it was probably Black Market. I was around the same age, seven or eight, when I saw The Exorcist. And I know that there were bits in it that my dad considered to be, they saw before we saw it, but then he let us watch it. But he, he censored it because he made me go out of the room while certain things were happening. So head spinning around, that's okay. The bit with the crucifix, you know what I mean? I didn't see that. <laughs> I'd be put out of the room. But while I'm put out of the room, and this is kind of an interesting, I, uh, talking about censorship. So he wanted to watch it because it was censored. That's why he wanted to watch it. That's why he got it. And then he put me out of the room to censor it. So what do I, I want to know what's happening right now that is so bad that I can't see it. So I would sit outside the room on the stairs and it was much scarier out there. If I was in the room with them, I'd feel safe. But out here, I'm thinking there could be a demon right now coming down the stairs. And I'm filling in the blanks with stuff that scares me so much more than what was actually happening. So, uh, yeah, long, I went around that the long way. But yes, I was about the same age. And it was simply because censorship just makes people want to see it more. Didn't really work. They got right. it from somewhere. 
Yeah, exactly. Know, like, yeah. Our 11 year old really wants to see the exorcist and I keep saying no, no. And I just kind of wish there was like, like a kid version. Like it could be, <laughs> I don't know. There's a kid version of the exorcist <laughs> it somewhere in there, but like really kind of like scary, inappropriate movies. I wish there were like a kid version for like younger teens. It's called Hocus Pocus. Hey. <laughs> Part of what is offered in your body of work thus far as well, that is such a joy, is how you turn it into a tangible experience by enhancing story through different physical means, like in the lighthouse keepers and in the dark room, it's through the silent film lens and in the devil's doorway, this lush 16 millimeter aesthetic or in this new short eye exam, it feels almost like a mashup that gives us a timeless quality. What do you think it is about playing with media, the actual media itself? What about that awakens something in us? I think for me personally, I've always been interested in using different, putting together different uh, things to create a story. So like as a child, my dad had a 16 millimeter camera uh, and a a Super 8 and we used to make little films together. We would make little like scary films, so to speak, where I would pretend to be like falling off a cliff or something and we'd show them to my mother and she would pretend to be terrified, you know, but there there was no sound um, on these films so you might make a soundtrack with a cassette recorder. You might, you know, add sound to it with that and play them both at the same time. I, I always liked kind of combining things in that respect. And then I worked in theatre for a really long time. And in theatre, it's quite normal to combine a lot of different uh, ways of communicating information to tell the total story that you see on the stage. So there'll be sound design. Very often there's some kind of video work there's live performance, there's maybe live music, and it's you get a, a, a total uh, sense of the piece from all of these different elements, which you don't get as much in film, but it is something that I just like playing with. It's just something that appeals to me, you know. I like tangible, tactile things. I used to shoot on Super 8 and 16mm myself as well. I also used to develop my own uh, films, my own photographs I used to edit. Super 8 manually myself. I've always enjoyed like ringing up the projector and getting it going like that. A lot of the stuff I've made has been like that. And um, I just am fascinated with analog machines. So that's a big part of it. And the past in general. We want to talk about The Devil's Doorway. That movie is such an awesome surprise. Talk to us just a bit about writing it and the history of those Magdalene laundries where it takes place. I, I hadn't been aware of that. Yeah, a lot of people in the States don't know about that. So Magdalene Laundries are uh, one of a group of institutions that the Catholic Church ran in Ireland um, that housed women and children. And Magdalene Laundries were the primary ones that housed women. And they were ostensibly places where women who had nowhere else to go could go or women who are in danger in society. I say danger in inverted commas, like if you got pregnant, you weren't married or uh, if you'd been raped, or if you were considered in some cases too pretty to just be left as a single woman out in the real world because, you know, someone was going to harm you. In reality, there were forced labour camps that any woman could be put into if two male members of her family signed her off into one. You didn't have to do anything wrong at all. You'd just be putting. And in these labour camps, they would do laundry for hotels. They wouldn't get paid. Hotels, restaurants, all that stuff. And they also... Uh, did worked for corporations and they didn't get paid. So a lot of these women made the board game Mousetrap for Hasbro. 
Uh, do you remember that game? Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh. So, in Ireland that was mostly made by women in these forced labour camps so you went in you couldn't leave the police would bring you back it was like a prison you had to work from morning till night you didn't get paid you didn't have any human rights uh, it was basically a type of slavery and the last one in Ireland closed in 1996 so they're not like super ancient history either like they're quite they're women who are in their 40s today who are in these places so I I had watched a small little documentary about a Magdalene laundry place where 800 babies were dead. And then they had this huge plot of land and there were like 122 bodies. So this is something that actually really happened, right? Because we don't learn about it here in the United States. I, this is my first experience with it. So this is something that actually happened. Now, I know that you had inspiration for making this film. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this? Well, the case that you're talking about. So basically, we didn't learn about this either. Nobody taught us about, taught us about this in school. The Irish state has gone out of its way to hide this always. Even just in the past week, they voted to uh, bury the records of all of these institutions for 30 years. So that means that people in the States, a lot of these children that were born there went to the States They'll never be able to find their mothers. Women who are in these places can never get restitution for what happened to them. So um, we didn't know about it either. The reason that we do is because uh, a number of years ago, I don't know if the exact year, maybe 15 years ago, a woman in Ireland found this mass grave with the 800 babies in Tume, children and babies. There were no records for them. Nobody knows how they died, how they ended up in this mass grave. And it was land that was formerly connected to Michael Laundry that had been subsequently knocked down. And this kicked off a whole slew of public interest and uh, inquiry into all these events. And it was it turned out there were so many bad things that happened all across the country. That It was that incident in particular that inspired the original spark of the idea. 15 years ago when that happened, I was working in TV. I just graduated uh, college and I was researching a documentary on Michael and Laundries, um, and it, we never ended up making it for the various reasons these things don't happen. But I'd done a year's worth of research. I've spoken to so many people who'd been in them or who'd been born there, and I knew all the bad stories that came from these places. So basically, when the Devil's Doorway came along, I didn't originate the idea. What happened was the producer, Martin Brennan, had an idea, which was he wanted to make uh, found footage film set in the Magdalene Laundry, but he was thinking modern day, it'll be like Grave Encounters, get a bunch of kids, put them in a spooky abandoned building and just scare the crap out of them, uh, give them GoPros. You know, that's kind of what he was thinking. And the reason he spoke to me about it is because I was known as a theatre director and he wanted someone who could work with improv. And when, he, when I met him, it almost felt like it was fated to be because I had done all of this research and I thought on the one hand, this could be so good. And on the other hand, this could end up being absolutely terrible. But there is a middle place that you can try to navigate with this where it's actually where it actually might be of some value. I think the best horror is about digging into social trauma. And this seemed like such a good potential ground to explore for that. Um, I felt that that needed to be handled carefully. And on the other hand, there's so much found footage. I mean, you guys are horror fans like I am. I watch so much horror. I see so many found footage films and they all look kind of the same. And, you know, some of them are probably really good. And there are ones that I've seen that are great. And there are ones I've seen that are not good. But because there's such a glut, you just end up scrolling past sometimes. So I said, in order for it to 
really like <laughs> earn its place within that subgenre. It needs to be aesthetically a bit outside that. It needs to step outside of that a bit. So kill two birds with one stone, get to the heart of the human drama and make it sit aesthetically outside of the established tropes and expectations of the subgenre by setting in 1960. It's period. You don't see a lot of period horror films. Shoot it on 16mm film. You don't see that either. And then you can actually get into uh, a discussion about good and evil and how these things happen and all that kind of thing instead of just using it as a spook show background, if you know what I mean. So I was really excited about it, but also simultaneously really concerned (laughs) that it could go a very different way. And I thought I'll never hear from him again because he wants to make a different film. But he called me back the next day and then we applied for finance we got it and that's that's it that's how it happened the boo crew will be right back if you think all vampires are ugly creatures of the night then you are in for a shattering surprise lust for a vampire disciples of the black mass devils in female bodies which embraces the kiss of death for man or woman lust or a vampire. Released by American Continental Films in color. Rated R. To you, what is it about the horror genre that makes it such a strong vessel of social commentary and reflection? I think uh, that's a really good question. I think that there is something about horror. I mean, I read, I'll start like this. I very often get people saying to me, oh, I don't like horror. And do you not get really scared, you know, making horror films, writing horror films? And I say no, like when I'm making The Devil's Story, we, we laugh the whole time. We, every time the camera's off, we're joking, we're outside smoking, you know, like we're not walking around going, oh, I'm so scared. That atmosphere is created eventually through all the steps that you take to make the thing. But horror, when you sit and watch a horror film, um, which is hard to do when it's your own horror film, someone else's, sit and watch and you feel scared. You get to safely dip your toe into the sensation of anxiety, into fear and feel the physiological response so you kind of get to try it out. Mm. So um, you're not really facing any existential fear or anything that's really going to harm you or threaten you in any way. But you get to safely kind of dip your toe in and see how see how that feels and respond to it. And that helps you to feel a sense of control. And I suppose that means that if you're facing things that are horrible to think about, it works in a similar way. So Magdalene Laundries, and I, I've had so many people say to me, Oh, you didn't make to need to make a horror film of Michael Laundrie's. It already is a horror film. And it's like, yeah, I know that. Like the real story is more horrific. I know that. And that's kind of the point as well, that what really happened is the most horrific thing. But it it gives you a safe way of um, thinking about these things without having to really go to a very, very dark place, if you know what I mean. It's a, uh, and because horror is metaphorical, it's almost poetic the way that it works. You're not confronting it face on. It's, it unpacks it and puts it into separate pieces and you put them together yourself in, in your head. In the days and weeks after you watch Get Out, you think about a lot of different social issues. Or if you watch Hereditary, it makes you think a lot about family structure and uh, being a parent and being a mother and um, 
whether or not your relationship or your mother was good or, you know, and it, it gives you time and a metaphor to blanket the immediate response to that, I think, if that makes sense. Yeah, that dash and that's the most beautiful way I've ever heard, heard yeah. that put. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Doing research into exorcisms and black mass, uh, what about it surprised you upon learning more about it? Were you able to consult with the experts in that field or Catholic priests? Well, I mean, I am Irish and I'm Catholic, so I've kind of been consulting with Catholic priests my whole life. <laughs> the funny thing about, about Catholic priests is, and every time I go to a wedding, well, not every time, they're not always Catholic weddings, but a lot of them are, there'll be a priest there and he's usually invited to stay for the party and stuff. And um, I like to talk to them because I find them to be very interesting people. And uh, they'll always say to me, uh, oh, I love horror. Every single time, priests love horror films. They particularly love The Exorcist because it's very validating about um, their, if you've given your whole life to this, to believing this thing. And then there's this film that says there really is an existential battle for humanity's souls against a dark lord. Now, that's a, that makes you feel a bit like a hero, you know? So they love that thing. But I mean, and if you say to them, if you ask them about exorcism, they'll be a bit like, they're not really, the Catholic Church is actually a wee bit sheepish about that. It's officially part of Catholic doctrine, but actually they don't, they sort of, they're a bit embarrassed by it, the whole exorcism possession thing. I've never found one that was willing to talk to me about that in any serious kind of way. When it gets down to it, they love the exorcist, but they don't really believe that these things actually happen. Uh, so no, the short answer to that would be I didn't. I did do research into um, black masses and stuff like that, but most of what I found was kind of like, it's very theatrical. It's invented and it varies from place to place and from group to group. And it's a lot of fun. I listened, is there a band, is the band called Coven and they have a whole record. I think it's from the seventies and the whole thing is a recorded black mass. I listened to that, probably scared the crap out of my neighbors. <laughs> one night, frightened the whole thing, it's so dramatic and, uh, and so is the Catholic church. It's also very dramatic, very theatrical. And I did take that in, but I kind of, I made some stuff up too. It wasn't like by any means, um, because there isn't anything solid to hold on to. There's shifting ground when it comes to black masses and to exorcism possession and how it works or doesn't work. So, yeah. There are a lot of incredible effects that happen, be it with fire floating, crosses flipping upside down. How much of that, what we see was done in camera and practical? And if, if a lot of it was practical, what was the choreography like of maintaining that the mechanics of found footage and long shots while being able to fire all these effects and, you know, make it make it work? Well, for the most part, most of it was in camera. I'm trying to think. The, the crosses on the walls flipping when all the crosses flip at the one time. That was a fake wall, basically, that the art department built. And they had, they were just coordinated on the other side of the wall so that the crosses were fixed in. And then there was like something tying them to the other side and they would all just flip them around or pull the thing off whenever it came to the right moment and they would all just drop. I think we that worked really well. It was only, we only shot that maybe two or three times and it worked each time, but it worked better the time we used. The floating was a real stunt. We had a, a stunt woman come in and do that. Then the fire, we did actually have practical effect, real life fire. We augmented it uh, in post a little bit just to like make it slightly more, but we did do that in camera as well. Uh, I think like there are some little touches that are very subtle that were done in uh, in post-production that people probably 
might not even consciously have noticed. Uh, well, there's some stuff like bloody handprints, they were CGI, and then some bits were, or maybe eyes change, that kind of thing uh, that was done in, in post, but the vast majority of it was done practically. Yeah, the camera work gives the illusion that your actor is doing most of the filming, or some of the challenges in achieving the believable found footage uh, look of the film. It's a really interesting one, actually, because you have to think about that every single thing that you're shooting. But the thing about found footage is you're dead in the water if you give the game away. In this day and age, it's, what, 25 years or something after Blair Witch, people are no longer going to go, oh, my God, it's real. And I've, they're not going to fully buy into that. But at the same time, you want the viewer to be able to suspend disbelief. You want them to be able to enjoy it as if it's real for the, pro- for the duration of the film. And you're dead in the water the minute that that stops happening. So every single thing you shoot, you have to think of it making sense from the viewer's perspective as a found footage uh, document. Kieran, who played the younger priest, Father John, wasn't even on set a lot of the time. His, a lot of his voice was picked up uh, in post and he wasn't even there. We would The DP actually wore that cassock that the younger priest wears, the priest's costume, in case the camera would, if he was doing anything that was mobile or running around, in case the camera would catch sight of his feet, he would have, he's wearing the right thing, you know. So we put a lot of effort into making sure that we were covered on, on that front the entire time. In fact, even the DP went, Ryan Kernan, he's a brilliant DP, he went one step further and actually did one of the stunts himself. So there's a moment when, uh, I think it's when they first meet Kathleen in the cell and the younger priest is holding the camera. He gets pushed back by Kathleen. She turns to Monica suddenly, pushes him very forcefully, flings back against a wall. And John, that wasn't John, that was Ryan Kernan, the DP, who actually wore the harness and did that stunt. He really committed. There is wow. something you do that is extremely compelling. You did it in Childer when you move the camera away when there's a particular murder. You did it where you choose to break the footage in the devil's doorway and do it in eye exam when she isn't looking at the test images you empower and weaponize that which we don't see and those tend to be the moments that we think about at like 3 a.m when we're lying in bed and or in the shower those those are the moments that crawl inside of our head (laughs) what is your intention there what does that do to a viewer I'll tell you, it's what I said to you earlier on. It's what I learned sitting on the stairs outside the living room. My dad's watching The Exorcist and he won't let me see it. That what you don't see is so much scarier than what you do see. And in Childer, and I mean, actually, it was Ryan, the same DP that shot Childer, that shot The Devil's Doorway. And we almost had an argument about it. We had a heated discussion and he was really unconvinced that this was going to work in the film. And he wanted to uh, cover it by shooting her actually drowning the kid. And I was adamant that I did not want to do that because we've seen, we see so many deaths in films. We see so much violence and gore. It almost becomes soporific. It's like the audience tune out almost. They go into sleep mode. They're not paying attention anymore. If you come to a moment of violence and you take the camera away, now they're paying attention. They're going, why, why are they doing that? What's happening? I want to see what's happening. And they're not showing us. And their mind is filling in the blanks. And I think that's far more powerful. So that's basically why I do that. Mm. There are also so many amazing shots in Devil's Doorway in particular that wanted to reference, one of which has become kind of the film's calling card. It's a wide shot of Father Riley sitting next to Kathleen who's lying down. It looks almost like a painting. How much of those moments were cinematic pillars in your mind that you envisioned beforehand 
and what is the power in framing and experience in moments like these? I think I was always from the very beginning with this film conscious of it being a found footage film. And honestly, it's been, I knew what I was getting into and I was completely right. Every single film festival I go to, every time I'm doing a screening or, you know, talking to anyone about this. And if they're a horror fan, they're almost like, why did you make a fan footage film? There's so much snobbery about horror, but there's snobbery within snobbery about fan footage horror. I've never felt that that was fair because I think the Blair Witch Project is actually a very powerful film. It still spooks me. I think it works very well. And uh, I felt that I was going to make this film and I was not going to, I was going to be quite nice to look at because Father John, I wasn't thinking about Although I like the Blairage Project, it wasn't an aesthetic reference for this at all. Um, my aesthetic references were like Gothic paintings uh, of the 1800s and um, particularly the films of the Maisels brothers, uh, you know, early 60s documentaries. So to me, Father John is an amateur documentarian. And as I said, I've spoken to a lot of priests in my life. They nearly, nearly always have a hobby that they're really good at something. They are a priest but they're also a great photographer or they're really into wildlife. They can tell you everything about birds. They have something that they're a really committed hobbyist about. And for me, this was his thing. And if he wasn't a priest, he would be a documentarian. So therefore he shoots things that look nice. He knows how to frame what looks good. And I, I wanted him to have that, you know, so that's kind of why you get stuff like that in there. And of course, Ryan has such a, a great eye for lighting as well. So uh, it kind of came together with that. So how did you become a part of the bite-sized Halloween project for Hulu's Halloween? Well, I mean, this year kind of went up the left for everybody, okay? There's coronavirus, none of us saw it coming. There was several things that were like inches away from happening. I should have been shooting another feature this year. And uh, then, of course, that didn't happen because coronavirus. So bite-sized horror came about. Uh, Jack Tarling, the producer of the piece that I made, who also produced one of the other pieces, actually, I had already, I knew him anyway, we'd already had meetings and stuff like that. And he dropped me a line and said, I've written a script. Disney are doing this thing. They do these series of short horror films. Do you want to do this? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? Like, at least we get to shoot something in this year of coronavirus. So um, we pitched it to Disney. Then it came together and it was nice to get to shoot something this year, even if it wasn't a feature, but it was fun. And uh, yeah, we really enjoyed making it. Was it an idea for eye exam that you've had for a long time yourself? No, it was Jack's idea. So I exam. I have perfect vision. <laughs> uh, my vision is completely. Uh, I'm the worst person in many ways to have made a film like this, which is about that particular kind of vulnerability you feel when you're having an eye exam. But Jack wears really strong prescription lenses, and uh, this was his idea. He wrote the script and. Uh, I'm glad he did because I wouldn't have had any idea what even is involved in an eye exam and I had to rely on him heavily for keeping me right on that front. But yeah, so that's coming from him. So stuff like the, uh, I've learned so much in the process of making it and funny enough, everyone who was involved from uh, 28 Digital uh, in the making of it, everybody had had multiple eye exams and I've never had one. But the little uh, hot air balloon and the, you know, all the little images that they show you, that those are universal. They have those in the UK and they have them in America. And they're so recognisable to people who've had eye exams. And I think it was fun to kind of use them. They're so innocuous, but also they become quite threatening in the context of, of the film. And I thought that was really fun. And also it read me like a, 
uh, outer limits of the 50s. You know, uh, it was written contemporary. It was written for now. But I thought this could really be like an episode of The Outer Limits or something. So that's why I took it in that aesthetic direction. Now that it's completed, do you think there's room ever for like a full length eye exam movie? I don't know about that. I think it's small and perfectly formed like it is. I think it's a it's a nice wee thing. I mean, to be honest with you, I kind of really enjoy uh, it's family friendly. It's for kids as well. It's not meant to be just for grown ups. And it's nice to to dabble in stuff that is that is a bit lighter like that. You know, part of me would love to make like goosebumps or something, you know. So I'd definitely be up for for a bit of that if it should come my way. In terms of uh, horror, what will you be working on next? What is the next project you'd like to bring to life? I've got a number of things that I'm working on. Uh, I have a film that has just been financed uh, with fantastic films. They produced Bavarian, if you saw that, earlier this year. I have a couple of projects in London. I have a few really exciting things happening in LA that I can't really go into detail on because that's how it is. One of them is with producer Marianne Madalena, who was Wes Craven's producer. So that's kind of a nice full circle with it being Nightmare on Elm Street being the first film in the genre that I saw and then to be working with Marianne. And I have actually a really exciting thing uh, that I'm working on. You all probably saw The Ritual, you know, that Netflix, uh, everybody loves book. So Adam Neville, who wrote uh, the book that that was based on, he didn't, he's a novelist, he writes horror novels, he's very popular in the UK. And he didn't write the script for the ritual because he'd never written the script before. But I think when he saw the movie, he thought, well, I could write this, I could do this. So he thought he would test that out by writing a spec script. And he wrote this script and he sent it to me because he liked The Devil's Doorway. And honest to God, it is the best script that I've ever written, I've ever been sent. I, I was really like just totally blown away. It's so good. It's folk horror, it's weird and spooky and... Uh, kind of really fun as well and uh, it's called Cunning Folk that's the that's the working title it's a British set folk horror and hopefully we'll be shooting that sometime whenever all this is over whenever you go back to normal life again oh that's so exciting yeah that's Ashley. awesome yeah. very cool we are looking forward to yes. that well Ashlyn thank you so much for taking the yes. time to talk to us today we really appreciate it Thank you. It was really my pleasure. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 179. Special thanks to our guest, Ashlyn Clark. Follow her at The Wireless Girl on Instagram and Ashlyn Clark on Twitter. That's A-I-S-L-I-N-N-C-L-R-K-E. See her movie, The Devil's Doorway, and look up all her amazing short films, including a time of release, Eye Exam, part of Hulu's Bite Size Halloween, streaming now. Production tracks for this episode provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying, sweet Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye! A Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.